I am uh, one of the pastors here on staff, and welcome to Water's Edge Church. If you're new here, we'd love for you to fill out a connection card. Uh, there's also going to be a connections dinner happening in a little over a week on March 6th at Claire's house in Encinitas, right down the street, right up the street, I guess you could say. And there's also a sign-up for that, so if you want to get involved, get lunch with us today or join us for dinner at Claire's house and Bernardo's house. What up, B? How you doing, dude? All right. Hey, uh, we are starting a new series, a Lenten series. It is Lent. It is Lent. Lent comes from the Latin word uh, lengthen. It acknowledges that the days are lengthening. Uh, but Lent is obviously more than just celebrating spring. As uh, writer and author Esau Macaulay writes, Lent is inescapably about repenting. And repentance is a change of direction, a spirit-empowered turning around. It's God working our lives so that we would turn from death, the things that are hurting us, killing us, stealing life, to life. Uh, As one of my favorite New Testament professors writes, N.T. Wright, he says, Lent is a time for discipline, confession, and honesty. Not because God is mean or fault-finding or finger-pointing, but because God wants us to know the joy of being cleaned out, ready for all things God now has in store. So as a kid, I always somewhat dreaded Lent. I grew up a Catholic. Any Catholic brothers and sisters here? Yeah, I still love my Catholic roots. And uh, Lent usually meant like giving up gummy bears or gum or anything gummy and not eating meat on Fridays. Praise the Lord for the fresh fish filet at sandwiches at McDonald's. You guys remember that? Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Yeah, you're like, fresh filet sandwiches. Or the silence on Good Friday, how hard that was, but brilliant move on the parents. Um, And and Lent, that's really good. Sacrificing, foregoing something is a really good thing. But Lent is also more than that. Because we all struggle, all of us struggle with spiritual amnesia. Lent is an opportunity to recalibrate to take stock of our own lives, take stock of our world, and recognize our need uh, for the cross and our risen Savior on it. That's, that's the goal. It's, it's a time of examination and, and lamentation, a time for us to grieve together um, the wrongs of our world and, as well as the wrongs of our own lives, and then hopefully to confess. And hopefully we'll have some time for that. Uh, just like Deb mentioned, that title, God Roars, Uh, reminds us that though we have a God, well, especially because we have a God who's loving, who's tender and affectionate, that loves you just being you, a God who doesn't want to live without you. That's what Easter tells us. That's what Good Friday tells us. This God is also holy and righteous and powerful and wants to guide our steps, wants to help us discern. This God is also, this is a big turn, sovereign, He is not only in all things, he's over all things, and he's working behind the scenes in mysterious ways that are frankly indiscernible. We don't get it, but the Lord is working. I think a great, I don't usually do book recommendations, but I just started reading it. Father Gregory Boyle, he's a Jesuit priest, Homeboy Industries, Homegirl Cafe, anybody know that, up in LA? For my birthday, you wanna take me up there, I'll let you. I'm just saying, I've never been, I've been wanting to go. But this is somebody who's on the front lines of justice and mercy and reconciliation. And he's also this mystic uh, who's grounded, well grounded in theology, but talks about the tender affection of God, the whole language, the power of extravagant tenderness. I'm excited. I got an early copy of that and I'm really looking forward to it. And that's, that's the tension 
and really the freedom that we want. Because the people who are on the front lines of justice, they know God's love in a way that others do not. Which is interesting. And we are, and I, I put the wrong series. Can you put the series tagline? It's God Roars, Recovering Biblical Justice in Our World Without Mercy. That's the tagline. We're looking at the prophetic book of Amos. We just were in James. You're like, why did we stop James? Well, we wanted to take some time in Lent to look at the book of Amos. We're going to come back to James after Easter. Uh, but Amos deals heavily with judgment of the northern kingdom of Israel. We don't even like that word, judgment. But I think it's good for us not to ignore prophetic books. That tends to be what we do in our Protestant slash evangelical streams. I think we need to lean in and see what God may have for us. Amos is written during arguably 750, 760 before the time of Christ, B.C. Uh, and it's during the reign of the 13th king of the northern kingdom of Israel, whose name is Jeroboam II. The second. And this is 13 out of what would be 20 corrupt kings, all in the northern king of Israel. And if this is foreign territory for you, I'll give a little bit more of a historical survey, and I'll probably do it again for the next couple weeks, because it's, it's foreign territory for me. When's the last time you've done a book, we've done a book, a prophetic book, a minor prophet? Do you remember that? It's been a long time, right? If at all. So what, what made the kings corrupt? Well, there was a criteria. If you read First and Second Kings, which is a historical narrative in the Old Testament, the kings within Judah and Israel, and we'll talk about that split a little bit, they had this criteria. Did they worship God alone? Like that long, last song. No, they didn't. They worshiped other gods. Did they get rid of idols? No, they didn't. Did they follow the covenant? No, they did not. And that made corrupt kings. And if they did not follow the covenant that God laid out, that led to rampant injustices, social injustices. And Jeroboam II, he was this military king who gained, regained land. They were prospering. And Amos comes to expose the fragile nature of their prosperity and to call forth a time where the, their moral and social collapse is going to meet the consequences of, of God. That their political and spiritual corruption is going to come to their own conquering. And that can be uncomfortable. And we're going to wrestle in this series. I hope is that we wrestle. We're going to contend with concepts like divine retribution. Consequences that inevitably come to those who practice injustice. We're going to wrestle or grapple with theodicy, the consequences that come to those who seemingly don't deserve it. If Israel's being judged for mistreating the people in their nation as well as their neighboring nations, and Israel is going to be conquered by Assyria 40 years later, what about the people who are already being mistreated in that nation? Why do they suffer those consequences of being conquered? That's a, that's a good question. And those questions certainly matter. They do. Uh, but also, I want to name that those kind of conversations tend to overshadow what Amos and I believe God is trying to make clear. And that is the fallibility of God's people. The injustice that we practice, that we are complicit to. God has some very strong words, very cutting imagery. And sometimes it can feel too harsh, too severe. But perhaps not. Perhaps not. Now, Ben, you here? You ready? Cool. In the past, 
You just hang right there. Ben is going to play the part of God. All illustrations fall short. <laughs> He's been growing his hair out and the beard for this moment. In the past, I've given an illustration of what it means to be a person, doing our own thing, walking our own life, and God's pursuit of that person. God's pursuit. I'm a person doing my thing. Come on, baby, pursue me. <laughs> Come on. And we do our thing. And, and, and at some point, someone calls attention to the Lord who is holding us and that loves us with a tender affection that is unparalleled, that's unfailing, unstoppable. And it can feel a little annoying at first. Oh, gosh, what that means. <laughs> but we're really wrestling with our own unbelief that are we really worthy of this hug? Do I merit something like this? But there's something about this hug that's contagious, something that makes you uh, want to return to the dreams that you had as a boy and return to a home that you never knew you could be possible, a home of grace and compassion, of mercy and forgiveness, a love that precedes any action or inaction that we have an encouragement, and a new purpose of inviting other people into the home, of saying, hey, you come in here, sweet thing. Yes, <laughs> and a love that's open and just, it, it's experiencing the person of Jesus. Come here, lady, come here. And uh, yeah, the Holy Spirit is at work. It's, it's an amazing thing. Uh, you can, yeah, 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 of course. Okay, that's part one of the illustration. You could take a seat, Ben, while I riff for a little bit. That God's never too far from any one of us, and the hope is that we would perhaps reach out to them, him, God, the Lord. Um, I want to read two verses right now as we think about that God. And again, illustrations fall short, but they are means by which they open up, as Paul talks about Ephesians, the eyes of our heart. There are ways to, to bring light to us, and I want to do another illustration to help us just process what we're going to be reading over the next six weeks. But first, let me read Amos chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the entire family I rescued from Egypt. From all the families on earth, I have been intimate with you alone. This is why I must punish you for all of your sins. So let's think about that example. Let's think about me embodying a people, embodying the people of Israel, a people who were set apart, a people where God uniquely revealed God's self to them, a people who experienced God's rescue, God's glory, a people who were told early on, about 650 years prior to this moment where Amos is speaking in Deuteronomy 30, Today I've given you a choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. So I'm representing the person of Israel. I'm representing a body of people. What happens when God continues to call a people to himself, to love them, and the people continually resist? Now it's time for a creative biblical history. Get up here, God. So that happens uh, 640 years prior to where we're reading, if you have, follow a biblical timeline. 
And in that moment, the Israelites are formed in this desert. They're refined by the love of God. They resist. They come back. They resist. They come into the promised land. They come into the promised land, but, and they're led by Joshua, who's with them and removes a Canaanite influence, which is a really dark chapter, but also the Canaanites were really dark, influenced by very dark principles. And, and, and Joshua's like, I will serve you, Lord. Are the rest of us going to serve you? Joshua represents his hand, and then the time of judges comes. And there's, yeah, and there's this, I want to do this, and then there's this and this. Over again for 400 years, embrace, resistance, and embrace, resistance. And, and God keeps pursuing them. Even as they walk over here, God keeps pursuing them, <laughs> keeps pursuing them, keeps pursuing them. And eventually, the people see the other people, the other nations, and they see that they have a king. And like, I want a king like they have. They seem to be doing okay. And God's like, he allows it. He allows them to have a human king. He, he wants to be king. God wants to be king, but God allows them to have a human king. And they, they pick a king named Saul who seems ideal, but this king is flawed, a little self-centric, too shameful, too prideful, a combination. Those two usually run hand-in-hand. Hand. And then they have David. David is a faithful king, but he's also flawed. But he's faithful. <laughs> but he's flawed. And that flaw trickles down into his family line to where there's Solomon, who seems so promising, so promising. But Solomon loves God. He wants to know God, wants to know the thoughts of God. But his thoughts also carry him to other places. He gets seduced not only by other people, but by their gods, by these Canaanite gods. He gets seduced by Baal, this Canaanite guide of harvest and weather, which is really just about wealth. He gets seduced by Anat, which is this goddess of sex and fertility, pleasure. He gets drawn to Anat. I want to have this god slash goddess, I can't tell, of war, which is about power. And he tries to hold both, and he loses both. And through this generational pattern, he has a son named Rehoboam, who is ambitious and who's very demanding of the people, over-demanding, and he starts to oppress his people. In fact, Solomon was the first one to enslave labor for his building projects. So you see this slavery and forced labor happening. Rehoboam, his son, puts the demands on his people, starts enslaving his own people. Then there's a split that happens. This is where Israel splits from Judah. You guys getting with me the historical timeline? And the whole time, they're walking further and further away from this God. And Jeroboam is the one who splits from Rehoboam, who's Solomon's son. This is the first king of the 20 kings of northern Israel. And there's times, there's just times where they just choose these other gods. And these other gods stand. <laughs> these other gods stand. And they seem like they're open to us. And as this people gets closer and closer, they turn their backs on him. And eventually, in time, they squash these people with the hopes that maybe this God would reach out. And that's a bit of what happens in your biblical history. Thank you, everybody, for your improv.
Now, does that encapsulate everything? Of course not. But that's not a bad illustration in my belief of what happens. God's pursuit of us, but God allowing us to experience the consequences of our mistakes with perhaps we'd reach out for him one more time. And that's a lot of our stories. That's a lot of our stories. We'll see if I missed anything. Amos, his message is to give a warning of that happening. Like, hey, this is coming. In fact, his message of giving this warning 40 years prior to the conquering Syrians is God's grace again. I'm telling you right now, this is going to happen. Amos fails. Amos in many ways fails. Most prophets at their time fail. It's only hindsight that makes you recognize, oh, these words, we were warned about that. This is why we're here right now. God was being faithful to us even in the midst of our own faithfulness. They were closed in and God was reaching out. Even if the chiastic or the intended center, chiastic is just X, it means like in the middle of the book is the heart of the message. It happens a lot in scripture. Even in the middle of the book, in Amos 5, you see the heart of God. He's calling them to return to them. This is the Lord says to Israel, Amos 5.4, seek me and live. And then a few verses down, Amos 5.14, seek good, not evil, that you may live. There's something synonymous to seeking the Lord and seeking goodness. And the Lord Almighty will be with you, just as he says he is. So when we look at this passage, when we look at this book over the next six weeks, we're going to try to read it through. We're just going to survey and reflect on it. There are times where we'll feel like the sovereign hand of God and the orchestration of these things feel cruel and icky. And that's okay. That is okay if you feel that way. It will feel disturbing. It will. I hope this is an opportunity uh, to take us to God. But what's interesting is that most of the criticisms of the rhetoric you find in Amos, do you know where they come from? North American and European academic circles. That's where most of the criticisms come when you read books like this, and you see God. The, the contents within Amos, within deprived and diverse cultures, are almost always embraced. If you're living in a third world country, if you're feeling oppressed, whether home or abroad, and you read these words, you find solace. Oh, God sees me. God's efforting for me. God knows my situation and cares about my situation. If you're doing pretty well, then you have, for some reason, you feel like you can call out how, mm, this doesn't make sense, I don't like it. I'm just naming that, I'm going to leave that where it is. I mean, uh, the late civil rights leader, you know, I'll continue on, pastor and doctor Martin Luther King Jr., he clung to Amos writings during his ministry. In his famous uh, letters uh, in a Birmingham jail written in 1963, he penned this. But though I was initially disappointed as being categorized as an extremist, as I continue to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, and do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear my body, 
the marks of the Lord Jesus. It was not Martin Luther an extremist. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. King also quoted uh, Amos 5.24, letting justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And his high have a dream speech, which would be five months later in 1963 in the lawns of DC. You were there, sir. And here's the thing, dude. Even as I talk about Martin Luther King, or even as that incepts this idea of race, or like systemic injustice, or, or racial, what side am I on? Yeah, this is it. <laughs> this is on your right side? I'm on, no. Yeah, I'm on the left side. Systemic injustice, racial uh, inequities. Those th- words come in your heads. Or you might think of critical theory or academic revisionism. Think about that. That might just entrench you back in your socio-political foxhole. Like as you hear me quote Dr. King. Think about that. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe generationally that's not us. But what is the gospel calling us to do? It's calling us to put on our armor of God and to walk out of our foxholes and into the quote-unquote alley, out of the battlefield, and to see not our enemy, but our, our brother or sister, to come out of our holes and to listen to one another and see what God wants to say so that there would be unity. But it's not just that, so that we would actually get off of the battlefield and walk into the alleys, get out of our sociopolitical trenches and see the person in the alleys that needs some food, see the lonely. That's what we're called to do as God's people. That's what I hope this conversation will bring up. It's tense. It's great. So let's read and reflect. That was a long intro, Andy. Oh, thank you, Kim. You're always allowed here. Actually, I'm going to get a break. How's everybody doing? Good? So we'll be surveying the book of Amos. It's not going to be like my normal sermons where, like, you read it, and then you do a couple points. I'm going to read it. We're going to reflect. Then I'm just going to give some reflections. And then we're going to try something new. Amos chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. I'll make a stand just this one time, and then we'll be good. If you're physically able, please stand out of respect for God's word. Amos 1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel Two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel, he said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. That's God's word for us today. You may have a seat. There's more to be read. Now, Amos He's not from the northern king of Israel. He's actually from the southern kingdom. There was a split that I talked about between Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who oversaw oversaw Judah, and then Jeroboam I, who oversaw the northern king of Israel. And whenever you hear about the Samaritans in the New Testament, that's essentially who the northern king of Israel are. This is uh, the northern kingdom who was conquered by Assyrians and then later by Babylon, who had to intermarry. That's why they hate him so much down in Judah, the Ju- the Jer- those in Jerusalem, because that's in Judah. They're looking up at that northern kingdom, seeing those who 
basically intermarried, and they're like, those are half-breeds. This is the beginnings of that story. You with me? If not, we can talk later. I'm trying to do my best to cover biblical history. Judah senses God call. He's a farmer. He's not, he doesn't grow up as a prophet. He wasn't a son of a prophet. He just senses God's call and heads across the lines between Judah and Israel and proclaims God's word to them. And when we think of the prophets, we might think that there's just one prophet at a time. The world is full of these prophets. Prophets are counselors. They are, uh, there are, there are people who are raised, they're, just, they're like group leaders everywhere, speaking the words of God. And, and the prophets have competing words. Sometimes they're saying things are good. Sometimes things are bad. Sometimes even worse, they're saying things are honky-dory, just fine. Keep, keep uh, things, other, keep things, what is it called when you want to keep things just the way they are? Status quo. That's status quo. That's right. Amos's voice is different. His voice stands the test of time because what he said eventually was fulfilled. And as we, we look at this boy, as we look at this book, we can ask the question, was every promise in here fulfilled? And, and that's why I want to talk about the genre real quick. There's only two parts of this book that function narratively, what the Bible scholars prose. Most of the book is written in poetry. You ever read your Bible and you see like a lot of indentations? This is indented, and this is indented further and indented. Like show the first slide of uh, the next few verses. Those are all, see how those, there's like these wild indents happening? That means it's functioning as poetry. A lot of us within our Western mindset, we love prose, to read narrative, to read uh, information, to read exhortations. We love to read Paul's epistles because most of it's written as like, hey, this is how it is. It's prose, it's sequential, it makes sense, it's informational. Poet, where prose brings clarity, poetry makes you think. It makes you really discern, okay, what's going on here? What is the heart of God in this moment, or at least an aspect of the heart of God? So this, is, this book is here to make us think. Not everything that we read here is going to be fulfilled. What we know is ultimately a series coming. But it makes you think, oh, what is the house? What is God? What's going on with God's heart? What is an aspect of God's heart that we need to know? I'm just going to go. So let's, now that I've talked a lot, let's start reading. You're right there. So Amos 1, 3 to 5, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even four, I will not relent. We're going to see that for three sins, even four a lot. That just is like a, a formula, meaning there's a lot of sins going on in this place. Because she, Damascus, threshed Gilead with sledges, having iron teeth, I will send fire, fire is a sign of war, on, on the house of Hazael that will consume the fortress of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds a scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. So Damascus is a northern kingdom. They have war crimes for conquering people. And Amos foretells a similar conquering that will happen to them. They will be taken out by the Babylonians as well. They're just going to go right through Damascus when they get Israel. Verse 6. This is what the Lord says, for the three sins of Gaza, even four, I will not relent. Again, a multitude of sins. Because she took captives of whole communities and sold them to Edom, I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortress. I will destroy the king of Ashad and the one who holds a scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the Lord. These are the Philistine countries. 
similar practices of war and slavery. They were captured later by Babylon. Verse 9, this is what the Lord says, for the three sins of Tyre, or Tyre, even four, I will not relent, because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortress. Tyre was an ally to Israel and Judah, and they practice capturing and slaving communities. Verses 11, this is what the Lord says, for the three sins of Edom, even four, I will not relent, because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land. Because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked, I will send fire, again war, on Taman that will consume the fortress of Bozrah. Edom, who should be Israel's brother, he was, the Edomites are part of Esau, if you know biblical history. Israel is a grandson of Abraham. The other grandson was Esau. They represent the Edomites. Instead of being brothers, Edom was violent and hostile. 13, this is the Lord says, for the three sins of Ammon, even four I will not relent. This is hard to read. I'm just going to name that. Because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders, I will set fires to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortress amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds of a stormy day. Her king will go into exile. He and his officials together, says the Lord. So Ammon is about land disputes and brutal genocide and infanticide. Uh, as archaic it seems, this seems archaic. That actually happens today. This is stuff that is going on today. Uh, this is what the Lord says, for the three sins of Moab, even four I will not relent. Because he's burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. It's interesting how God cares about Edom, too, even though Edom is judged. Isn't that beautiful? I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortress of Kerioth, which enshrined the God. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of a trumpet. I will destroy her leader and kill all of her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For the three sins of Judah, if you recall our biblical history, Judah, this is where Jerusalem is. This is where Bethlehem is in. Uh, this is, God is bringing judgment on them as well. Judgment is different. For the three sins of Judah, even four, even for four, I will not relent. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they've been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed, I will send fire, the fire of war in Judah, that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is a foretelling of Babylon conquering Judah in 586. Judah too. Yeah, Judah too. Uh, there were 20 kings in Judah. Eight were faithful. Eight were faithful. Josiah, Hezekiah, there's names that like kids have names of. These are the faithful kings. But there were all many, there were also many unfaithful kings. And whereas these other six kingdoms, Damascus, Tyre, Edom, Amnon, etc., where, where they generally violated moral, basically general moral rules of humanity, Judah violated the revealed law of God. They disobeyed God. And they'll one day lose, they lose their defenses and wealth in which they trusted in. So at this point, Amos is proclaiming these Six judgments, six judgments, and, and they're having a good time. Israel's having a good time because these are neighboring countries that they've warred with over the years. 
They're like, this sounds great. They're even loving hearing about Judah, that smug brother of ours getting theirs. This is the way that Amos is, is capturing our, our attention. And I want to just take a moment and just pause and give a few reflections before we move on. When it comes to God's roaring, there's some things that we need to take hold of from this passage. Uh, there is probably a lot of things. This is what I deduce. The first thing is this, is that no one escapes the sovereign justice of God. No one's escaping. That's what's being made clear here. No one's getting a pass. God sees all things. And hopefully that gives us freedom. See, it's impossible to be peaceful and nonviolent in a world where there's no ultimate justice. If there is no lasting justice, then we will be forced to take justice in our own hands, to take revenge. Conversely, if there is a God who is going to bring justice and seize the actions of all the people that have harmed and hurt others, ourselves included, we are free then to love our enemies, to get out of our foxholes, to walk in the alleys, to serve the oppressed, and let, judge, uh, let God take care of the rest. Make sense? That's a freeing thing. If there's a God who ultimately judged, that should free us to love our enemies. All right, that's the first reflection. Make sense? Second reflection from this, because I'm not going to read it again. That was a long one. There are higher expectations for those who are called by God. There just is higher expectations for those called by God. For those who are loved by God, there are expectations that we would love others. This is what we saw in Amos 3.1. Listen to the message that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the entire family that I rescued from Egypt. From among the families on earth, I have been intimate with you alone. You know my love. You know it. This is why I am going to punish you for your sins. And we're going to read this list from Israel. But as you hear in the great Spider-Man films, that with great calling or great power comes great responsibility. Biblically, it's with great calling. With great calling comes great responsibility and therefore great consequences. This is true. As Jesus said it, he said it this way, to whom much is given, much is expected. And we have been given so much. We have been as a people. And therefore, much is expected, much is required. This is a, this is a truth that I'm not going to ignore. Higher expectations for those called by God, and we are called by God. Lastly, and this is appealing to the, the humanistic senses of Israel, we think justice is calling out the injustice of others on high. We think, I'll say it another way, we are tempted to believe the lie that justice is simply calling out the injustice of others from our pedestals. We think that's us participating in justice. No, God's the one of judgment. God is the one who's essentially going to sort things out. We're not the ones that call out injustice. We're the ones that practice it. That's not what Israel's doing. As we're going to read in this list, Israel is denying the poor. They're abusing them. They're denying them legal circumstances. They're, they're sexually abusing people. There's this crazy uh, 
gaps between the wealthy and the poor. And somehow we think our call is to call out injustice, to point the fingers while ignoring our own. That's a lie. It's not okay. That's not what we're supposed to do. It's hard not to. It's certainly hard not to. But that's what's being demonstrated here. Even as you look at, there's a sweet image, and we're going to do this video next week because we probably need another review. As they name all these cities, they're actually forming somewhat of like a, I don't want to say a bullseye, but when you name Gaza and Edom and Momad and Amen and Damascus, even as you name them, they're cities that are farther away, coming closer until you land at Israel. He's appealing to their senses. You see all the injustice around you? Isn't that terrible? Yeah, those guys stink. Let's talk about your own injustice. Let's sit with that. And this is what happens here. In a list that would be three times, and we're not going to get onto it, but we'll give a sneak preview as we look at biblical justice or justice socially next week. Amos 2, 6 to 8 says, this is what the Lord says, for the three sins of Israel, even four I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. This is an indictment against Israel. Yes, the kings are corrupt. And it's easy to think that since the kings are corrupt, the people are corrupt. It's that, but it's also this. Since the leaders are corrupt, the people are corrupt or the people fall victim to the corruption. And, and that's where I'm going to just take my stop today and practice another thing, what I'm calling the pastor's corner. And I don't know, I don't know if I feel good about this, but the, the tagline of the series is about looking at different injustices, and we have different, we have different things happening. There's so many different injustices. I think we actually need to take time at the end of each message and just like, hey, let's look at this injustice and just sit with it so that we can kind of preach, we can kind of preach the passage and then not ignore the injustices. So this is, this is the pastor's corner, I'm calling it. Come with me, neighbor. All right. I really struggle with the first one to talk about today. And I don't know if this is an injustice, but we're going to talk about it. Nationalism. Nationalism. And I, I, I know that, like, um, not all of us are, like, hooked on cable news or, or crazy political people. But it does grab a hold of us. And nationalism says, I, I, and I'm a novice here, but I'm going to just try. I'm going to try. Uh, loving God equals loving your country. Or loving your country equals loving God. And I love our country. I do love it. The roads, it's amazing. Think about it. If you go any other country and just think about what we have, it's amazing. The opportunities, it's super dope. It is. But you and I are called to be kingdom ambassadors in the country that we love, not to equate the two together. Oh, <laughs> thanks. And, and so what we see from a passage like this that is true today is this concept of othering. And uh, some of us might believe, 
um, that inequality is a defect in the system. Actually, in the system of the world, inequality really is a system. That our failure to love God and others isn't just personal, it's also collective. It's the entity that God talks about the world. And the world, uh, from a dark sense, is set up in a way where um, we, we have a propensity as a people and people groups to other others. And those factions run along ethnic lines, gender lines, sociopolitical lines. Uh, there's so many lines that I probably missed. Um, it isn't just about race, but uh, that, can be, that is a huge part of it. It's about vocations. It's about um, police officers. It's about uh, teachers nowadays. It's, it, the lines are, are thickening. They're getting bolder. And as, as a people of Christ and people who have a propensity towards nationalism, we live in a very, obviously, you know, bipartisan reality. And part of being uh, bipartisan is that we can fill out our boxes and miss biblical issues on the other side. We just do that. We're, we're ideologues. We love to fill out our boxes and totally ignore everything on the other side. And there's something biblically wrong about that. You can be a conservative and know that there's issues of race. You can be someone on the left side and recognize that abortion's wrong while still trying to resource mothers who need help. You can. You can. We can. What is required is for us to get out of our foxholes, our nationalistic foxholes, and to recognize that we're kingdom ambassadors and can listen to others. I have the greatest gift of having in-laws that are, tend to be on one side and then parents who are tendly on the other side. I have a great gift of working downtown with people and friends who are on one side and then friends from home are completely on the other side. It gives me this opportunity to listen and just be like, okay, Lord, what are you saying in this? But we are going to be stuck checking off our boxes if we don't listen. And people need to be heard. There is injustices all around us. And I think the first part is just taking off our sociopolitical armors and putting on the armor of God so that we can hear about injustices in a way that's not disarming, that's not trying to take away your, take away from you, not trying to rob you, okay? Nationalism. Our hope is to be kingdom ambassadors in a country that we love and not to equate our values with God's values, amen? So let's just take a moment and think about someone that we'd like to point the finger at. Let's think about that. That's what Israel's doing. They love pointing the finger. Who's someone that we like to point the finger at? And how can we come closer to that person and not further from them? Whoever that person is, who's somebody you like to point the finger at? And how can you this week come closer to them? Let's just take a moment and just grieve that together, that we've distanced ourselves from somebody that's close to us because of some belief or value.
Yeah, Lord, we just, we grieve the ways in which we tend to create others. And when you want us to be people who just are free, freely loved and freely loving. So in this time of Lent, would you bind us to others? Even if people don't want to be binded to us, God, would you somehow in your miraculous and amazing ways bind us to others? I think of the people of Israel. I think of the people there that heard Amos' words and, and maybe their hearts were broken when they heard those names of Amon or Edom or Judah. I, I pray that whenever we hear about someone or, or even someone's, a people group that are outside of us, that our hearts would be drawn to them in love. So that God... I know that we're not going to, like, solve injustice. Maybe we will. I don't want to doubt you, God, but, like, I, 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 somehow it tells me that you want to start small. That's how you did, Lord. You came here and you started small, Jesus. So we'll be people who just would be compelled by your love. Yeah, we are flawed, but will we be faithful, God? Returning to your arms when we need reprieve. Arm in arm with you when we serve others. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So that's the beginning of our series in Lent, which I'm stoked about. Yeah. Here's the thing. I was nervous. Because <laughs> uh, it's, so for, it's foreign territory for me, guys, so it's a good thing. Uh, individually, here's, my, here's our next steps. I would love for you to tend as much as you can during Lent, because I think the full picture will be really helpful for us. Um, and then in our crew conversations, as you talk with others, discuss what injustice breaks your heart. We're not going to cover the whole spectrum of injustice. We're going to try to hone in on what we're reading here. But hopefully it does um, compel us with love. And then join us as we expand or seek the desire to expand our mission frontier. Come join us with the Door of Faithful Orphanage. We really need to know who's coming in the van or if we need more vans. And then uh, there's a house building trip. And then, of course, there's the basketball camp, there's our auntie and uncles group. I really believe God has a lot for us and therefore wants a lot from us. So with that, I'm just going to invite the band up.